Today, on this episode of the PV Roundup Specialist Spotlight. That type of body image that I'm not good enough, even though I'm normal and healthy, or I want my body to look like my favorite model, it's really um, not what we're going for with using these medications. We're looking for improving health and minimizing risk of disease. Today, Dr. Holly Lofton, a medical weight management specialist, joins me to discuss on-label and off-label uses of the GLP-1 agonists, including Ozempic, in this edition of the PV Roundup Special Spotlight. I'm your host, Senior VP Medical Director, Dr. Tim Wright, and returning to the podcast is Dr. Holly Lofton. Dr. Lofton is the Medical Director of the Weight Management Program at NYU Langone. She is also the Fellowship Director of the Clinical Obesity Medicine Fellowship and the lead of the Clinical Access and Educational Programs, Comprehensive Program on Obesity, NYU, Longone Weight Management Program. Dr. Lofton, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you. So happy to be here. Okay, so you are our go-to person for all things weight loss. And I'm so glad you're back on the podcast because I've just been noticing in the news lately, there's been a lot of talk about GLP-1 agonists, in particular Ozempic or semaglutide. Um, first, I'd like to talk about what it's approved for and how you're supposed to use it. Can you share that with us? I'm really excited that you asked this question because I think there's a lot of misinformation out there about what GLP-1 agonists are. So I'll start with that. GLP-1 agonists are peptide medications that act just like the hormone GLP-1 that we make in our intestines. And what that hormone does is it increases in concentration in the bloodstream as we start to eat a meal. So it goes to the brain and it signals that you're less hungry, goes to the stomach, signals that you're more full. And the really exciting part about it is that it hormonally helps fat cells shrink. And that's what no other previous class of medications for weight management has done in the past. So when we're using this for weight loss or weight management, as I like to call it, it's technically FDA approved for patients who have a body mass index, that's a height weight ratio of 30 and up, no matter what their health, or 27 and up with a weight weighted related condition such as diabetes, hypertension, heart disease, sleep apnea, et cetera. Right. And before we get to the next segment here, I want to, number one, because you and I know each other and I've listened to you talk about this, I wholeheartedly believe in obesity as a disease. And I think that that's been a barrier even in the medical community to get people to believe that. So I understand that these you know folks have this disease and, and it's debilitating and dangerous and so forth. But what I'm reading, not only in the medical press, but the lay press, is that there are people who may not have obesity who are using this medication or asking for it. Could you go on about that a little bit? There are absolutely people using it off-label. So off-label use of medications is not illegal by any means. Uh, we use off-label medications in medical practice quite frequently. I'll give a common example. Metformin is a very well-known drug for diabetes. When we see someone with pre-diabetes, we give it to them because our rationale is, well, why should we wait until they get diabetes? Let's give them something that will get those numbers down. So that's a very common off-label use. Uh, it's a medication that's meant for one thing, we use it for something else, but with the, the message that there's evidence that this was helpful and the provider who's doing it has some experience and comfort level doing it. Uh, now, so there's people who are using, say, Ozempic, which is a brand name for, for diabetes for weight loss, and the patient does have diabetes. That's another example of off-label use. Using it in a patient who is not indicated for is considered off-label. So if the patient's BMI is 25, and you as a provider say, look, this person is at high risk of some other condition if I don't even get their weight down from 25 to 24 BMI. And you decide, 
um, with good judgment that you want to do that. And then there's clearly uh, just use that is off-label that patients are using it for the temporary weight loss of five or 10 pounds before a wedding or a beach day. And, you know, there's some interesting uh, conversations being had about that. Yeah, and that's the, the next part I wanted to get into because I do believe that sort of off-label, we, we know from programs you and I have worked on that even a five to 10% weight loss can really change somebody's metabolic um, and physiologic parameters. So, you know, that is, I think is obviously the clinical judgment of the practitioner. But what I'm reading about are sort of patients who we would ostensibly believe have normal body weights or near normal body weights who are for other reasons requesting, you know, ozempic or semaglutide. And I, I don't know if I want to say that that's inappropriate. I guess my question would be, what sort of circumstances for you would make you uncomfortable if a patient came to you and asked you for ozempic or semaglutide? Well, I'll tell you, this happens quite commonly now with the popularity of this class of medication where I have patients who are uh, young, able to exercise, not exercising, gained a little belly fat, you know, after college, things like that. Diet is okay, but could be better. And really say, I want this drug. My BMI is 23. And when I was in high school, it was 19. I want that again. So the caveat about medications for weight management is that they are an adjunct to lifestyle therapy. So they should be used in conjunction with diet, exercise, and behavioral modification. So in that patient, I would say, this is not, you're not a medication candidate. However, if I have a patient BMI 23, um, or 23, 24 in a wheelchair, unable to do physical activity, going to be put on a medication that I know is going to make them cause, cause weight gain, then that's a different story. So it, it depends on the individual and the situation. Right. Because I, I was sort of some of my colleagues and I were talking about this that, you know, none of us are weight loss experts, but if we were in clinical practice and we were, you know, who would be the, the people that approached us that we would sort of feel comfortable with? You know, and some people were throwing out, you know, are there new moms who after pregnancy are sort of like, I really want to lose the baby weight? You know, is is that, I mean, the demographics of people that come to you, you, you did one, would that be some of the individuals or, you know, amateur athletes who, who want to stay at a specific weight? Have you seen examples of that? I have seen the spectrum of every type <laughs> of patient I think you can imagine. So yes, I had the new moms this week. I had the um, college-age student, BMI 22, not exercising. And I said, no, this is not for you. Come back after you've exercised. Uh, I've had patients in their 70s, 80s uh, with heart disease. So these medications right now, the GLP-1, specifically the, the weekly ones, Ozipic and Wegovy that we're talking about today, have yet to be approved for cardiac disease prevention. Um, there's a study being done right now. And, and it's looking at Wegovy doses in patients with a previous heart attack, stroke, or peripheral arterial disease. And they either give them placebo or Wegovy and follow them for about five years to see if they're the second incidence of a cardiac event. And then once that study is done, which we expect to be this year, we'll know if there's an indication for cardiac prevention, secondary oh. prevention. That's great to know. And so the other thing that comes to mind, because I deal with a lot of different specialties, is, you know, if somebody who's of normal weight or underweight is seeking this drug, it makes me think, are they, you know, does this uncover some sort of, does this patient maybe have body dysmorphia or is there some sort of eating disorder? I mean, it opens a whole can of worms where people are, you know, sort of looking at this societal ideal of, of body image. And a lot of folks have, you know, some underlying 
issues that probably could be triggered by this. Well, I think that brings up the point of, uh, especially with females, body image and social media. So I've been giving out these medications for about 10 years in some form. Uh, started off off-label and moved to on-label when it became available. And the idea of asking a person to take an injection for weight loss was just a gas to the patient. How would you dare ask me to take a medication to inject into my body for weight loss and I have to convince them I really think it's much better for your body? Now people come in, oh, I hear celebrities are on it. They look great and I want to look great like them. I want to be like them and live their life. So I want to jump on this. So that type of body image that I'm not good enough, even though I'm normal and healthy, or I want my body to look like my favorite model. It's really um, not what we're going for with using these medications. We're looking for improving health and minimizing risk of disease. Yeah. The interesting thing is, is that, and I know you pretty well, uh, it didn't surprise me that you would say to some patients who weren't appropriate, no, you can't have that. But I did a Google search the other day before we got on the this you know, podcast together. And there are people out there who are more than willing online to issue you a prescription for this for just money. And yeah, maybe, a couple, maybe a couple of questions on the internet. Shocking. Yes, there's, a, there's been some exposés about programs that are online and even the telephonic messages of going back and forth to the provider and not either not asking what the weight and height are or ignoring the fact that they're underweight and prescribing the med because you know there's money to be made and you know weight loss is a I think we're in a 50 billion dollar something business and it's it's increasing exponentially so there is a there's a demand and the supply was actually an issue with the FDA approved meds last year and it led people to these sort of backdoor avenues to get some aglutide and and that's been added to our market now yeah, uh, I mean, I, one of the articles that I read, uh, a new, I think it may have been the New Yorker or something like this, was talking about how patients who really depend on this medication for their for their well being were having a really hard time finding it, even on Manhattan, which you know you look at, you don't think of Manhattan as some place that's going to run out of anything. And then the other thing that I read, and now this is really shocking, is that you know we know as clinicians that medications have you know, positive effects, but also have adverse effects. One of the people that was interviewed said, yeah, I know there's a risk of thyroid cancer, but how bad can that be? I mean, can you kind of go over the risks that are associated with GLP-1 agonists? Happy to do so. So you asked earlier, what kind of patient is good for this? Let's talk about what kind of patient is not good for this. So, you know, lower than those BMI classes we spoke about, but these medications are contraindicated. And so for our listeners, that means you should not give it to these are not to be given to patients who have a personal or family history of medullary thyroid cancer. And I want to explain the reason for that. Because on the label, it says, in the rodent studies, GLP-1 agonists were associated with increased incidence of thyroid C-cell tumors in rats and mice. Thus, it is unknown what the, the implications of this will be in human populations, so the drug was never studied in anyone with that personal history or family history of that type of cancer. I'll say it again, medullary thyroid cancer, which is very rare. And there's another condition called multiple endocrine neoplasia type 2, which has a culmination of different endocrine issues, including medullary thyroid cancer. And it's simply because it wasn't tested. So I have patients who do have that history and say, I really want to try it. I said, I'm not going to be let you be the guinea pig because it has not been tested on people like you. So that's the reason. It is unknown whether it causes any humans, but we don't give it to those type of people. Now, pancreatitis is a relative contraindication. So there are times when 
patients with pancreatitis, you know, maybe it's been resolved, they had their gallbladder out and there's no longer a risk, you know, we'll give them GLP-1. Um, but you have to look at every individual and really careful screening is important. And, and those providers need to be comfortable not only with the medication, but the prescribing information about who it's safe for and who it's not. Right. And you actually sort of answered my next question, which is sort of your colleagues out there who may not be as familiar with these um, as you are and who may be prescribing them solely for people, you know, who have diabetes because, you know, there's a lot of internists and, and folks out there who are probably prescribing it for folks who have diabetes. And then if anyone knows someone has can write a prescription for it, you know, I'm sure the word gets out. Other interesting stuff. So that's great. Thank you for covering that topic. So there's another, I, I think we talked about this last time. Uh, is it pronounced Monjaro? Monjaro, yes. Okay, that hits both GLP-1 and GIP. That's a tag team right there. Yes, yeah, so I think when the articles came out about semaglutide, we go be the, the tagline was game changer. You heard it over and over again. It's a game changer. And then an article came out in Wall Street Journal this week that called Monjaro King Kong of weight loss drugs because of the spectacular weight loss and minimal side effects. So of the GLP-1 agonist, Lunjaro is unique in that it targets two receptors, GLP-1 and GIP. So it further slows down stomach emptying uh, and it further helps with glucose control of those who need it. But the interesting thing is it has fewer side effects as far as nausea, loose stools, constipation than the others. So people really like it. And the weight loss is in the range of about 23% weight loss. So uh, again, it trumps um, semaglutide. But for now, it is intended for people with type 2 diabetes. And the company, and I don't know who is really spearheading this, but someone's keeping really close tabs on all the prescriptions to make sure the patient really has diabetes. They're asking the provider, the patient, and the pharmacist to verify that the patient has diabetes before it's dispensed. Um, because I think they're concerned about these potential supply issues, and they do want to make sure that on-label use is um, prioritized. But then that was going to be my follow-up question. It sounds like that certainly this drug could suffer the same fate if they weren't putting the same, these sort of safeguards that you're talking about with, and time will tell if those safeguards sort of get dropped a little bit. But it really, it's amazing. When I looked at the data, I was sort of like, wow. As a clinician and also someone who has, you know, knows people who, who struggle with their weight, some people have a very sort of fraught relationship with food. I mean, it's one of the few things we can't do without. You know, we cannot smoke, we cannot drink alcohol, we cannot drive fast or drive at all, but we have to eat. For people who have issues with their weight, food can be like this double-edged sword, correct? Absolutely. And patients who I put on these medications tell me that they feel, and I'm using air quotes here, normal, which, which means they lived their whole life feeling that something was wrong with them, that their appetites were out of control, that they, when they would try to restrict eating, you could only do it for so long, maybe a month, try your best, lose five pounds and get so hungry you just can't do it anymore. So uh, in, in using these medications, which really target the, you have to remember, appetite is a hormonal response. It targets those hormones that make you hungry and full. Uh, patients can really achieve the caloric deficit without feeling so uncomfortable that they can't go on. And I can't um, emphasize enough the fact that the medications really help fat cells shrink. So another way to think about obesity is that it's a dysregulation of the fat cell. Just like hyperthyroidism, the, the thyroid is just going crazy and producing too much hormone, the fat cell can start feeding itself and get bigger and bigger. So what these medications do is help re-regulate that fat cell so they want to shrink. Okay. Wow. And so 
I, I want to, because you, you do this so well, it's sort of the end here. Um, most of the people who listen are involved in the healthcare field, not all. Some of your colleagues are out there, you know, they write for Ozempic for people with diabetes or so forth, and they have a patient who comes in who's really starting to try to pressure them. What are just a couple of the quick pointers or maybe a couple of phrases that you can share with them that can help them sort of push back from this patient gently? Yeah, so the first thing I would do, get the patient's vitals. You know, you always want to see their height, weight, their blood pressure, things like that. And then I always ask patients, why, why do you want to lose weight? What's the goal here? Is it a dress you want to get into? Is it your health? Is it a surgery you have coming up and you need to lose weight for that? Because that can uh, dictate how, how urgent the issue is. Then I ask them, how much weight would you like to lose? Now, we know what the BMI table says. Everyone should be BMI 22 and a half, but that's not possible. So the patient knows how they felt at a certain weight and when they felt their best. So I like to ask them, how much weight you would like to lose? Then I really calculate what percentage of their current weight that is and look at these studies. So if someone wants to lose 5% of weight, the likelihood they'll lose 5% of their weight with these medications is very high, about 90%. But you could also lose 5% of weight with diet, exercise, and behaviors uh, for most people. And then if they want to lose 20% and you think the patient is a medication candidate, then all, all means because it's highly unlikely they will lose 20% and keep it off for long term without medications. And in those who are really not candidates pushing for the medication, we have to explain that with every treatment, whether it's a weight loss medication or chemotherapy, there's risk and there's benefit. And if, if you might lose weight with this but incur side effects, then it's all risk. And that's not how we practice medicine. We first do no harm. And I couldn't think of a better way to end it. Dr. Lofton, thank you so much for adding some clarity to this. It is Always good to talk to my go-to professional on weight management. Thank you. So happy to be here. Thanks again. Have a great weekend. You too. And that's today's episode of Special Spotlight. Thank you for joining us. For more stories like these, visit us at peepingroundup.com to subscribe to our weekly newsletters. Thoughts, comments, or suggestions? Please leave us a review on your preferred listening platform or email us at editorial at pvroundup.com. Subscribe to our podcast on Spotify, Pandora, Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, or Google. You can also download our Amazon Alexa Flash Briefing, Medical News Roundup, and just ask, what's my Flash Briefing? Thanks today to our guests, Dr. Holly Lofton, and Sean Mullen, Nick Mata, and Kate Rio for production assistance. Join me next time for an episode where we'll cover the latest stories in the world of medicine.